If we should put first what we love most, what should we put first? Like, what are we supposed to love the most? Welcome to Consciously, a podcast focused on honest conversations for regular people seeking spiritual growth. Here's our host, Menachem Poznanski. Consciously family, welcome back. It is great to be here. It's good to get back into the seat. I spent a week, a week actually in Israel. I went for a wedding, some beautiful, remarkable people, and working on a new project called Genesis Treatment, which is a, an inpatient and outpatient facility in the heart of Jerusalem. But um, but I'm grateful to be back here uh, with you and uh, with my family. Um, so I want to talk about that today, actually family, what's important to us, what really matters most in life. But first, before that, I want to thank you for joining us and ask you, invite you to subscribe to the podcast, give us five stars and a review on Apple or all the places that you take your podcasts. Uh, Check us out on social media, The Light Revealed, on Instagram and on Facebook, and you can check out our books, Consciously, Six Steps to Living Vibrantly with Our Creator, and Stepping Out of the Abyss, A a Jewish Guide to the Twelve Steps, and uh, soon-to-be-released book which I'll talk about more when we know more. Uh, Really excited about that. If you want to reach out and connect, ask us questions, or just uh, say hello, you can reach us by Instant Messenger at The Light Revealed on Instagram, or you can email us, thelightrevealed at tlrfamily.org. And as always, you can check out our website uh, where you can find all of our episodes categorized and cataloged by topic and theme, uh, thelightrevealed.org, but also some other really remarkable content there, including our newest project with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld, who's the mashpia of The Light Revealed. He's doing some awesome short-form videos um, that have been fantastic. Okay, so family, what's really important, you know, what's most important in life? So there's a, there's a pasuk, there's a passage in the Torah that everyone knows, uh, really any, any Jew who's engaged in prayer, uh, knows it comes right after the Shema prayer. We say Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Here, Israel, the Lord is one. The Lord is our God, and the Lord is one. And Baruch Shem and we dedicate our, our ourselves and our lives with a commitment to living in God's will. And then we start a small paragraph. Well, three paragraphs follow the Shema prayer. But the first one starts Ve'ahavta es Hashem Elokecha b'cholavavcha. Which loosely translates as, you should love God, or you shall love God, with all your heart, your spirit, and your meodecha, which is your abundance, your wealth, whatever symbols of value are in your lives. Now, the literal implication of this of this passage, of this pasuk, is a call for us to love God ahead of all those things that are normally most precious to us, emotionally, spiritually, and materially. And But that really leads to a really powerful and important question. Why? Why is it important to love God at that level and in those ways? What, are, what is it that the Torah is calling us to? Meaning, why does it specifically pick What's it trying to get across and what is the spiritual messaging behind that? Yet even more so, there's an interesting story that highlights a powerful message. So there's a story that was told over by the Friedrich Rebbe, which is the, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, the father-in-law of who everyone knows as the Rebbe. And he told over, he was a direct descendant of the original, the 
the, the Alter Rebbe of Chabad, the original Rebbe of Chabad, and all of his descendants, the Chabad Rebbeim. And one of the cool and interesting things about the Friedrich Rebbe is he was fascinated or dedicated to stories. He, he listened to stories uh, from his teachers and from his ancestors, and he would write them down, and he would tell them over. So his stories are interesting because they have a, a certain you know, authenticity to them. So the Friedrich Rebbe told over that there was once a Hasidish of Fabrengen, which is, for those who don't know, you can definitely check out uh, Practically a Fabrengen, my other podcast with my Mashpia Mayor Prager. But, but a Fabrengen is a gathering of Hasidic Jews, people engaged in the practice and the learning of Hasidus uh, in order to, to learn and to study and to give each other support and encouragement and also to, to talk about life. Um, you know, for those uh, in a in a twelve step or a recovery frame, sometimes they bring it is like a meeting except with with alcohol, right? So it's like right, or the other way around, the meeting is like a fabrengen without alcohol. Uh, that's one of the funny ways in which people describe it. It's a, a group of people getting together to discuss spirituality and to discuss life, lahavdil, obviously. So one time at a Hasidish fabrengen during the lifetime of the Alta Rebbe, the original Rebbe of Chabad, the Baal Hatanya. One of the Hasidim that were present raised his glass, and he made a l'chaim. And he made a prayer. He said a prayer for himself. He said, l'chaim, may Hashem bless me with true ahavas Hashem, meaning to truly love God, that I should be blessed to truly love God. That was his prayer. So the Mitla Rebbe, the middle Lubavitch Rebbe, was the second Rebbe of Chabad. He's called the Mitla Rebbe. He raised his glass, and he said, may Hashem bless me with true ahavas Yisrael, May God bless me that I should truly love, come to love others. So then that, uh, a discussion ensued, that inspired a discussion around the table. Some, in fact, they, the Hasidim were trying to understand, what is it that's more important? Is Ahavas Hashem, love of God, the greater mitzvah, or is Ahavas Yisrael, love for others, a more important mitzvah? Meaning, what is it that God um, calls us to? in a more significant way. So according to this legend, the debate carried on throughout the entire Fabrang, and it actually carried on for a number of weeks until they decided, the Hasidim, they were there trying to understand what it is that's more important, to love others or to love God, to work on our love of God, our love of others, or, or to work on our love of God. They decided they're going to go to the Rebbe for clarification. Now, what's interesting here is that they spent a few weeks trying to discuss it amongst themselves, which is very empowering. It's a really powerful message for people that are growing spiritually. You don't always have to run and ask. First, try to figure it out for yourself before you go and clarify. So anyways, they came to the Alter Rebbe, and the Alter Rebbe replied in his classic, concise form. He said, Ahavas Hashem and Ahavas Yisrael, as the Friedrich Rebbe reported, must surely be engraved concurrently in the soul of every Jew. And they should be equally engraved in the soul of every Jew in the same space. Seeming, so... Which one is it? He's basically saying they're both important. But which more, why, what did he mean? He said, because Hashem says that he loves his people. God said he loves the Jewish people. Thus, Ahavas Yisrael is certainly greater, for if you love Hashem, you must certainly love who he loves. Ohev Masha Ahov Ohev. Meaning love that which your beloved loves. So meaning that the Alter Rebbe was saying that you have to love God because you have to love God, and but you have to love other people because you have to love other people, but also because the one that you love loves other people, loves people. So therefore, you should love God. So therefore, love of other people comes first. So if that's true, 
right? If it seems, at the very least, according to the teachings of Panimus Torah, that God wants us to love our family, and by extension, the whole Jewish people, first and foremost, to put most of our energy to love who he loves. So how does that jive with the implication of the Pasuk, you should love God with all your heart, or love God more. It would seem as though the Pasuk itself is contradicting the point that the Alter Rebbe is making. The Pasuk seems to say explicitly that you should love God first and foremost. Now, if we assume that the opposite is true, that God demands that we love Him more, that's kind of that seems kind of petty. How do we understand that? From a context focused on seeing the Torah, if we were trying to see the Torah as an invitation into loving connectedness and not petty demands, what is the purpose of this command? How is it, how are we supposed to understand it? Meaning, either why, the question we're wondering is, either why does the Torah make it seem as if love of God has predominance, right? If perhaps, according to Panimus Torah, it seems to describe that that's not the case. So how do we understand the Pasuk in that context? And then even if love of God has predominance, what are we supposed to take from that? What is it, what is it we're supposed to learn from that? Why is it that God has to demand that? So the answer is that the ancient wisdom of Torah reveals to us that the command of you should love God with all your heart and all of your spirit and all of your possessions, all of your abundance, is, is not a commandment about loving God more than those things, but rather is very much consistent with the message of the story above. Each of the categories it describes, describes, corresponds to different layers of our existence. And what we are invited to, what the command is, is to love God through each of these layers and to love and be dedicated to those things as an extension of our love for God. Meaning, not that we should love our families because they're our families, but also love them because God loves them. And not to appreciate our abundance because we have abundance, right? But rather to overcome the nature of being kind of wrapped up with our worldly existence and rather love the abundance because God granted it to us and gave it to us in order to do wonderful things with it. We shouldn't be ashamed of our abundance, but rather embrace our abundance because our abundance is a vehicle. It's a symbol of a value that we can share not only with our families, but also with others. However, to really unpack this and to really kind of get into the the depths of it, let's explain a little further. In order to explain a little further, let's talk about reality itself, you know, for fun. So the, the ancient wisdom of Torah teaches that in order for God to manifest a reality where he could share his own all-encompassing and infinite essence in the lowest and most coarse disconnected realm of existence, the one that we operate in, God constricted his infinite light in a matter that in a manner that's called Simpson. And what Simpson is is a system of prisms, so to speak, through which God re- refracts his infinite light, thereby creating an illusion of separation, an illusion of separation that allows beings to exist as if Kiilu, they are separate from God, the all-encompassing light of God. Now, as this, these illusions, this symptom expands, it allows for more and more separate and independent beings to exist in a theoretically independent manner within the all-encompassing existence of God himself. Meaning, more symptom means the beings that are created, the beings that are formed through the refraction of God's light, have the ability to see themselves more and more separate from their source. 
the system of tzimtzum, this system of, of tzimtzum, of these constrictions, allows beings that are within God, within their source, to exist or at least perceive themselves as separate and independent from their source. Well, that was a mouthful. Let's try to just unpack that a little more, what we're trying to say. So as we've discussed here on the podcast, one of the most effective ways for us to analogize these kind of complex concepts within a framework of logic that we as knuckleheads can absorb is by thinking about the reality of light particles, protons, that emerge off of the sun, which is the source of light in this world. As Now, as particles of light travel to us on Earth from the sun, we can experience them in different ways. When we encounter them, for example, as they emerge through a crack in a shade or our window or through the right formation of clouds, we experience them as individual beams of light shining down onto us and into our lives. Right? If you look at the right cloud formation, you'll see these beautiful beams of light as if God is sending them to us or if light's coming through in a particular way. Now, despite the fact that we see individual beams of light, by the time we have rudimentary scientific awareness, like in elementary school or high school, we all understand the beam of light we see is no different than the seemingly all-encompassing and blinding light we might experience if we try to look directly in the direction of the sun. I mean, it's just light. The reason why a beam looks like a beam and we can look at it and even run our hands through it and see it as separate is because there's some kind of shade that's that's blocking it, so to speak, that's refracting the light in a, in a manner in which we can perceive it, look at it, see it, even almost feel like we're touching it, as opposed to if we look with our eyes directly into the sun, the light is so blinding that it blinds out our entire vision and we can't see for a few minutes. It, But however, it's all just the same. It's all just light that's emerging from the sun. The beam of light we see through the shade or the clouds is merely a filtered and constricted ex- expression of the intense light that appears to be separate from the sunlight outside, but is in fact one and the same. In fact, it is the shading and constricting of the light that allows us to notice the particularity of the certain light particles of that beam of light from the different light particles that are surrounding us during the day. Without the shading, all we see is light. With the shading and framing, we see individual beams. So now to take this a step further, Let's do a little bit of a thought exercise. If we were to conceptually in our minds track those beams of light and the light particles or protons they are composed of back in time and space, and let's say if we were to observe them, the moment just as they emerge from the sun itself, we would observe something quite interesting. In the instant before they separated from the sun, those particles would not be recognizable as individual protons. They would just be part of the greatest, most powerful object in our solar system, the sun itself. Yet, an instant later, those very same particles would be separate particles traveling through space, carrying some measure of energy and light, but not even a fraction of a fraction of the power and the light of the sun that they just stopped being a part of. In some ways, they are separate light particles, and in other ways, they're expressions of the sun, which because of separation from their source, seem to now be independent existence. Now let's take it a step further. Let's imagine that those very same particles, let's try to imagine those very same particles as they existed on the sun, but before they left. Now let's imagine we tried to identify them 
individually. We couldn't. It's just not possible. Why? Because before they left the sun, they wouldn't be separate particles of light. They would simply be parts of the sun. Now, this analogy represents a powerful concept that holds true throughout the realm of the spirit, that when a thing is in the presence and proximity of its true source, it cannot be differentiated from its source. It's merely just part of the source. This imagery is used in Panemius HaTorah to explain part of the miracle of our existence. You see, God is the essence of the source of our very essence, and God is everything around us and in us. We exist actually, in our source. Wait, so then how can we be perceived, experienced, and detected even by ourselves? If it is the case that we exist within our source without separation, then we should not be able to exist as separate and independent beings. The all-encompassing presence of God should blot out any chance of our feeling independent or of even existing. We are like light particles on and in the sun. All there is is the sun. Yet, here we are. We exist. We feel separate. We feel independent. So how? How do we exist? The answer to that, in short, is what we were saying before, tzimtzum. Tzimtzum is a constriction of the infinite, unconstrictable light of God so that we can exist in relationship to and with God. Why? Why did God make this? Kacha. He just did. For us. Because he wanted us. That's just the way it is. That's the best answer that Judaism can give us. Now, the way God chose to manifest this symptom is through a series of levels, which we also call worlds or realms of existence. Each of these worlds is composed themselves of nearly infinite aspects and layers. However, generally speaking, they, came down, they come down to these four worlds, Atsilus, Bria, Yitzira, and Asiya. The first of them is called Atsilus, this is not described an actual symptom or constriction, but rather represents the first layer of decision and desire by the Creator to have separation at all. Atsilus is the idea that God had and has to constrict Himself in order to make room for us to exist. This is the first layer of God's constriction, even the idea of constriction. Now, discussion about this layer or reality, world, realm, can be confusing and complex. So it's most often most functional to leave discussion of that layer of existence to highly trained, to the highly trained and initiated, not for knuckleheads. So when we discuss our relationship with God, the context of our relating to Him is in the other three layers or worlds that we mentioned above. As they are more connected with our constricted perspective of reality, they are confined by spirit, time, and space, and they're called Bria, Yitzira, and Asiya. Now, you'll notice that the command and invitation that we talked about in the beginning in Shema also has three layers, Levavcha, Nafshecha, and Meodecha. Is that a coincidence? Obviously not. The ancient wisdom of Torah teaches that each of those layers of self actually corresponds to the layers of constriction through which God created the world. Not only is it not a coincidence, that's actually the point. The ancient wisdom of Torah teaches that these three layers of self correspond to our three fundamental needs in this world, banai, chayai, umezone, to have offspring, to procreate, to have well-being, emotional, physical well-being, and to have continued substance. Modecha, that's the final one, refers to our, to our abundance, all we, everything we have acquired and everything we can count on. 
This is Mazzoni, which is sustenance, and it corresponds to the world of Asiya, the realm of existence and the layer of constriction where we actually get off the couch and do the world of action and self-actualization. Nafshicha, the other part of the Shema Prah, the second part, refers to our life force, to life itself, to the fact that we are alive. This is Chayai, our well-being. And it corresponds to the realm of Yitzira, the realm of existence and the layer of constriction where we own our personal identity, where we recognize a self as separate from the whole, from the, whole the world of self. Levavcha refers to what we love, what we are passionate about, our purpose, to the, to the fact that there is a reason we are here beyond ourselves, that we are called to a mission and that we're part of a process. This is Bonai, right? Bonai Chayim Azane, our children, our family, what we love more than ourselves. And it corresponds to the realm of Bria, the realm of existence, and the layer of constriction where we own our missionhood. That life is not about us, that we are called to purpose and meeting. So each of these layers in reverse represent the sacrifice, so to speak, that God made, the separation God induced in order that we could share in the privilege of his great plan for existence. Each world is a layer of existence which strips away the essential connection that we have with God for the purpose of creating a void that allowed for yet deeper connection down the line, a way in which God restricted his own love to make space for us, a sacrifice, so to speak, on our behalf, an expression of his love for us. He gave us individual meaning, which is part of the greater meaning of existence, but now is compartmentalized and limited. He gave us individual life force, which is part of life itself, the greater life, yet compartmentalized into a limited component of the greater whole. And he gave us individualized actualization, which is part of the great plan of human history, yet is compartmentalized and limited to our experience. Each world, each layer of existence represents a way in which God loved us counterintuitively. Let's explain. To love is to give, yet sometimes, when in a loving relationship, the way we give is by withholding, or even more powerfully, giving space to the other. This expression of giving requires the lover to transcend their own impulse to love and to give for the sake of love, confining them to not give. It's counterintuitive, and it's counterinstinctual. When this aspect of love is appropriate, it represents, in many ways, the highest form of love and giving. The same would analogously be true for God. God is pure kindness and love. But in order to create space for us individually to be, he had to constrict his own love and light, which he only wants to share. This is, so to speak, a sacrifice he makes, and in that way is the greatest expression of his love for us. You see, the ancient wisdom of Torah teaches us that by observing our own human experience, we can come to better understand God. As we have discussed, this teaching invites us to see ourselves and our human experience as an analogy for God, that through our experience, God is communicating to us and sharing with us himself. The implication of that idea here in this topic is that just as here in our worldly experience, withholding our impulse to give in an effort to create space for the other to be is the greatest expression of love. And if that's true for us, so too, in an analogous way, is it true for the way that God loves us. So, 
If we pull all of this together, we find that when the Torah invites us to love God ahead of our hearts, our spirits, and our abundance, it is in fact inviting us into a bilateral expression of giving that reflects back to God exactly what he shines onto us. You see, just as God sets aside his acute connectedness with us, because we're just part of him, to make space for us to have independent meaning, independent self, and independent actualization, so too can we place God at the center of those very things. We can meditate and bring to force a truth where our actualization, meodecha, our self, nafshecha, and even our very mission, levavcha, is not in its full state of expression unless and until we realize why we have them. Why actualize? Why be? Why have meaning? For our own sake or because God invites us to? as an expression of the original intent of creation itself. To actualize and to be and to act in purpose, because doing so brings to fruition God's desire in creating the world. In this way, we respond to his vulnerability by leaning into the opportunity, returning the love in kind. When we do this, we become active participants in creation, partners in the actualization, existence, and purpose of reality itself, we become a part of the whole and of the essence. This command is nothing but an invitation into an experience and expression of pure love. It elevates everything we do. It transforms our instinctual drive to perform, to build, to be, to create, to connect into callings of missionhood and expressions of love. Have a great day. Thank you for joining the Consciously family. Consciously is brought to you by The Light Revealed, a social media publisher bringing messages of Jewish spirituality and recovery to whoever is looking for them. Consciously is made possible by the kindness of the Capellius family in memory of Tzipora Bas Ravaro. Our producer is Morty Schwartz, our audio engineer is Alps, and our artwork is by Tani Puz. Our social media team is led by Tehil Nassanian with help from Zoe Poznanski. The assistant to the regional co-host is Shmaya Hanekman, and our music is by Eitan Katz featuring Zush. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can give us a review and subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. We love connecting with you, so please feel free to email us at consciouslythepodcast at gmail.com or private message us on Instagram or Facebook at the Light Revealed.